Hello, Totally Sort of listeners. As you may recall, Chris is away on vacation. Despite this, we do have something newish to release. This week's episode is straight from the vault. You may have noticed that the podcast begins with episode 4. That's because Chris and I recorded three practiced episodes before we started releasing them. So, this week, you are getting a listen to the previously unreleased episode 1. It's sort of like the release of Nothing Compares to You from Prince's Vault, yet totally unlike it in any way. After listening to it, I was tempted to go back and re-edit the whole thing. I didn't. So you are getting our somewhat cringeworthy first episode, Warts and All. I hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back with new episodes next week. and running and recording all right this is the first ever totally sort of podcast that is being recorded the proto episode or er episode if you will yes for identification purposes and for anyone who should find the relics of this podcast recording i'm darren hogan and i'm chris mcginnis and we are going to get started is our intro what have you been doing section which would be uh, other things beyond what we're normally going to talk about you got anything that you've done interesting i went to a the first time ever i went to a provincial ndp nomination meeting so politics not something you can expect to hear a lot of on this show but just a little weird sidebar i was helping a friend try and get nominated for the uh provincial elections here in Ontario. And as I understand it from reviewing your Facebook feed, that was sadly unsuccessful. She was unsuccessful, but it was still kind of neat. It was a fun process and uh, just really interesting. I've never been involved in in party politics at that level, so kind of cool. Good stuff. I did an escape room today with uh, some friends. Have you done that before? I have, yeah. Well, we uh, yeah. went to this place called Looking Glass uh, that we'd mm-hmm. been to before. Last year, they had a Christmas-themed one that was uh, done specifically for kids, and they had another one this year. We didn't have a chance to make it over Christmas. They were going to take it down soon, so we went out and did it, and we crushed it in 38 minutes. Nice. It all went well. How was, uh, what was, what was the theme of this one you were in? So Santa's sleigh had broken down, and you had to find a way to get to the North Pole and then reconnect his sleigh via electronically from the North Pole, reinitialize his sleigh to get it going. It was interesting. It it was fun. Cool. Good stuff. So for uh, people who haven't listened to the show before, which is anybody listening because this is our first time, uh, the main purpose of what we're doing here is just uh, Darren and I to catch up and say, what have you been listening to? What have you been watching? What have you been uh, playing? And yet at the same time, we are vain enough to think that we have intelligent things to say about some of those things, so we're recording them so you can listen to them. That is the conceit, the central conceit of this book. Yes, we are taking our personal conversations and turning them into art. <laughs> at least we're going or to call at least them. Recording. <laughs> I guess if, if it's recorded, it's art, right? Yes, yeah, so that's what we're going to call it. 
we are making a thing all right so so that takes us to our first section which is my week in geek checking out the first one at least on our schedule that we've created was television sure i think that's the one that is week in week out <laughs> going to be the most reliably <laughs> something that we have watched yeah uh, i know i've got a few i have two you want to go first uh sure the one that's probably the most distinct is the toys that made us have you checked that out yet i have not So it's a new documentary series on Netflix. So far, there's only about eight episodes. I don't know if that's a full season or if there's going to be more coming. But basically, it's a documentary series about all of the types of toys that collectors and nerds of our generation are into. So I've watched a couple of episodes, one on Star Wars toys and one on Masters of the Universe. And it's pretty well done. It's it's really, really interesting. They interview a lot of the people involved in actually making the toys, um, some of whom are getting to be pretty old, so it's a good time to be making the show because another 10 years they couldn't have done this. But a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff about the toy industry that was surprisingly fascinating. Interesting. Skylar is at, uh, currently speaking of behind-the-scenes on the toy industry, he's reading this book about uh, the creation of Tetris. Yeah. And he's talking to me he's like did you know about all this like backstabbing and attempts to steal the code and all this stuff and i'm like i have no idea what you're talking about it's apparently it is a pretty like machiavellian story and there's like layers and layers of intrigue i've heard that i i don't know any of the detail but i've heard it's quite quite the story yep um but yeah definitely recommend checking out this uh, toys that made us just some of the details that they reveal are are just like dumbfounding the star wars one especially i'm i'm going to share some of the juiciest bits because i don't feel like spoilers really apply on a documentary series like this they they just started making the star wars toys like months before the movie came out and because there was no way um even in today's day and age it would have been tough but in those days the production cycle was a lot slower and there was no way they were going to be able to get action figures to market in time so they basically did what was called label slapping and they took any product that could remotely apply to Star Wars and just slapped a Star Wars label on it so that they could have Star Wars merchandise in the stores when the movie came out. And the action figures came about six months later. Did they get so you? One, did they give you uh, some visuals on some of that early stuff that uh, came yeah, out and, with and label slapped on? It's funny because I, re- I remember all of those things from the from the Sears uh, Christmas wish book at the time. You, you know, when you said that, I also vaguely remember seeing Star Wars things around the time that I saw Star Wars and thinking, I don't know what the heck that is, but yeah. I, I couldn't put my finger on anything. But there was a definitely some deja vu when you mentioned that. Yeah, and it was neat. There was a, there were a lot of details that I uh, I'd forgotten, but I definitely remembered when I saw them. Like the first series of six or eight action figures for Star Wars were actually sold as a coupon, as like a promise to get them later, so that they could actually sell them at Christmas. They sold this like certificate of you're going to get action figures 
at Christmas uh, in 1977. My other favorite detail out of that was that the size of the Star Wars figure was determined by the fact that they wanted to, to make X-Wings and TIE Fighters to sell. And if they used a G.I. Joe sized figure, they couldn't have possibly sold those toys. So they shrunk. That's why the Star Wars action figures were the first little tiny action figures. Yeah, because you'd have to make a gigantic TIE fighter to fit a G.I. Joe sized Darth Vader into. Exactly. So and yeah, I highly to- recommend it. The Masters of the Universe one was equally interesting in that it was really the first. Uh, it was just a, an example of just shameless, just trying to make. A, a toy that would sell. So I won't go into more detail, but lots of lots of good interviews and insight and just a little bit of following the collector's markets, but really talking about the, the actual people who made these things. So it's a very cool series. So the Masters of the Universe one, though, was the, did the creation of a toy that could sell precede the show and then the show was just basically a further commercial to sell the toys? Or did they actually come from the show? The uh, no, the um, Master of the Universe. They they made the action figures because they needed something to fill the void. They didn't have a Star Wars at Mattel, so they came up with Master of the Universe just on their own, and they basically created a cartoon because somebody told them, well, kids who are too young to read comic books need to watch something on TV, so they slapped together a TV show uh, or a couple episodes of a TV show, and and that was that was sort of a promise to use to sell Masters of the Universe to Toys R Us. And but that did sort of prove that the concept of a TV show to sell toys was a great one. And so even though Masters wasn't put on TV to sell toys, it was the model that generated all of those eighty shows of TV shows made to sell toys. Excellent. I went through, uh, do you ever, have you watched or kept up with or even watched from the beginning Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I watched the first season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and never really went back to it after that. See, because I'm largely a Marvel fanboy, I did sort of stick with it beyond the first season. And it, it's been up and down, but I'd say generally I've enjoyed it. But the, the issue that it has and that it had sort of starting right in the first season is that there's always the issue of why don't you just call in Iron Man because he can deal with this problem that you've spent a whole season on for in like five minutes. So yeah. every season it's like, okay, like the Hulk could solve this problem. Why don't you call him? And and so that's always been the issue that I've had with the show is that how do you tell a story about normal humans policing a world in which there are now super yeah. beings? which Especially normal humans who are ostensibly affiliated with and in well exactly with. that's the thing and so in the past seasons it's been okay they're trying to tell this story but they would always have before and after the marvel movies that came out a tie-in episode so there was always they were always the highlights of the season at any rate it's like here's your show that ties into the movie and then you go see the movie the next week because it's released and then there's a show afterwards which flows out of the movie so it was always sort of a little interesting prologue and epilogue to the movies in the seasons and that was Mm -hmm. really the highlight for me of each season and 
I don't know if it's because they've kind of like, okay, that is a problem for us. So the last two seasons, they've sort of tried to write these storylines, which just get them away entirely from the Marvel Universe. So last okay. last season, the whole season basically took place with them stuck inside this Matrix universe where they were, they'd been, they, I mean, it was the Matrix. Their bodies were lying in stasis and they were all living inside this Matrix universe where Hydra had taken over and some of them had actually become hydra agents and it was like a reveal who you really are at your core kind of episode so it's like okay, okay. get them away from the heroes for a year and, so did that and work? it worked but the matrix thing is a little you're doing a season of stuff that really has no consequence in the real world at the end of the day because you know they're all okay. going to get out or most of them are going to get out or so maybe someone's going to die but they're all going to get out and then this matrix universe disappears they did a little bit of like them coming back and like now we got to deal with what we became in that universe kind of thing mm-hmm. because some of them uh were in there and didn't know they were in there they thought okay. they were living an actual life in a real universe and so some of them went off and had lives that were different than that, what they had in the real world. And then eventually the people who were in there, who knew that they were in there, tracked them down and convinced them, like, you, you're something different in the real world and this is not the real world. So, okay, so they've started doing this on a regular basis, yeah. trying to get them away from the regular yeah. Yeah. And then this season's is just, like, completely bizarre because they did the same thing, but they basically had some alien creature who realizes there's a problem who's been living on earth for ages and he's not allowed to interfere except in the event of an extinction level event and so there is apparently an extinction level event coming so he kidnaps all of the agents of shield and sends them 75 years into the future and in that future 75 years away the earth is completely destroyed and the Kree are in charge of this system of the... Well, they've got the Kree on shield. And the Kree have always sort of been in it because, uh, you know, I mean, the, the show started with Coulson, who was supposed to be dead. Right. Right, because he died in the Avengers movie, but he's not mm-hmm. dead. And it was, in the end, I guess maybe the, the how he lived stretched beyond season one. So if you didn't make it past then, you would know that it was essentially an injection of Kree DNA that they used to save him from near death yeah yeah i mean it's interesting it's kind of weird though because who knows what they'll do but it's it's sort of a completely different universe where the earth i mean there's some pretty cool shots because they're in the spaceship and they eventually look out and talk about we've got to get back to earth and someone's like what are you talking about and they look out the window and earth is this sort of mostly destroyed like almost half cool. moon shape hanging there cool. in the in the sky and so that's that's what's left of the earth that the Cree are now picking the the bones of uh it basically now are they uh, what are they in like season three four something like that now i think yeah i think it's season four possibly season five and is the cast largely intact yeah or are we yeah yeah hmm. interesting yeah at some point i might catch up on that so I got caught up this season on, because I was a couple episodes behind, that's one of the things I did this week was catch up on uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, I kind of enjoy it. It's a little bit strange, but, and, and it's hard to see. Again, it's a, they're getting us to watch a season of stuff that you know they're going to go back somehow. You know they're going to 
potentially solve whatever the extinction level event was and then nothing that happens this season will have any real effect on the ongoing universe which is the problem for me with it yeah, it's, it it's, sounds like a problem it's a it's a detour and i'm going to watch the detour and then we'll go get back and maybe continue along the regular story so here's a question for you because this was fairly big news it's a not this week news but it's fairly big what do you think about the uh, the buyout of Fox by Disney? As a fanboy, like as, a, as a as a fan of the Marvel properties, as a fan of the Marvel properties, I mean, I don't think there's any dispute that Disney and the Marvel under the Disney umbrella has been leading the superhero movie charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean. DC has fumbled repeatedly and Warner Brothers in trying to get the same kind of universe going that Marvel has. Uh, to some extent, Fox did a, a reasonable job with the rebooting uh, of the X-Men, some of those mm-hmm. films, although the last one wasn't particularly stellar. But, uh, I mean, and so now you've got them all wrapped under the, the umbrella of the people that have been making the best of these movies that are out there so i mean it's hard not to be a little excited with that it's it's weird because they've done such a good job with a limited stable of heroes which Mm -hmm. they've been building over time Mm -hmm. and to some extent i kind of feel like that capturing that universe in a way works better with a limited score of heroes that the more and more heroes you have running around in that world the more difficult it is and and the more uh, easier to do in a comic book more difficult to do in a film because then you wind up again with the same problem we talked about in agents of shield you've got this particular problem well you got a hero over there who can solve that problem why are you guys dealing with it when you could just call this guy up and it, For sure. When you have the limited range of heroes, you've got you're stuck with who you've got to try and solve the problems. When you open it up to an entire universe of available heroes, the problems seem. I guess you just got to have bigger and bigger problems. Yeah, I'm of two minds. I mean, on the one hand, I think I think in terms of the actual movie properties, I'm kind of ambivalent. I think there's you know, yes, it's exciting to see or to know that we could finally see, you know, uh, the Fantastic Four alongside the Avengers or some of those characters interacting. So in terms of what's going to come of the movies, it's kind of cool, although I, I think Fox has done some really interesting stuff on their own. They've, they've really made some dogs too, but, but I think where I'm most excited is the fact that, you know, over the last 10 years, the Marvel comic book universe has really been kind of dumping on these characters that they didn't have the rights to because there almost seemed to be a directive from above that why would we promote characters that we don't have the movie rights to and yeah you mean so like I think like the fact that uh, there is currently no fantastic four comic book being written yeah which is bizarre they've really kind of tried to uh, write almost write the the x-men and mutants out of the marvel universe when they were such a central part of so many decades of the Marvel Universe. So I think it's great from that perspective. But the other thing that I think is really interesting that I've heard a few people talking about in terms of the movies is kind of in the same vein of what you were saying about the limitations of how big is the roster of heroes being a good thing and forcing them to be a little bit more creative, but also that the limitations of not being part of that 
universe let the Fox movies do some really crazy things and especially uh, when you look at Deadpool and Logan as a couple of really very much standalone movies Logan although it's got all this baggage of X-Men that really fill it out for fans you don't need to have seen any of those X-Men movies to enjoy Logan it really kind of stands as a as a really cool superhero-ish western I loved Logan a lot uh, and Deadpool was a lot of fun too, and I'm, and I'm not convinced that those movies are going to keep getting made under the Marvel banner at Disney. And I think what we're looking at is the MCU under Disney, they're pretty consistent, but I don't know if they really hit like the A-plus level that often anymore. They seem to have settled into a solid B, B-plus. You know they're not going to suck, but... I'm not sure we're still going to see those, oh my god, wow, amazing ones anymore. It seems to be consistency over everything else. Yeah, and I've um, I've heard uh, people talk about, and, and I kind of see the the point, although you know, not really applying to me, but potentially applying to the content that may come out of it, that wrapping uh, Fox and all of theirs uh, really limits the places that people who are creating stuff can go to right Mm -hmm. so you know before if you had a comic book and an idea or a script you know you could shop it to fox and if they didn't like it you could shop it to disney or the other way around now you're limiting the places people can go with creative things and they're the the gateway is becoming more and more narrow that uh you know now it's just disney yeah yeah, that's definitely uh, definitely kind of scary. It's the singularity event. Yeah, but hopefully they'll put the X Men up uh, on uh, on the screen for me. Yeah. You know, although you know, I I didn't hate the way they were doing it before. Although they, you know, screwed. yeah. You're gonna say Phoenix, weren't you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the first iteration of the X Men was just god awful with phoenix and the second yeah. one didn't seem to be going much better but well, you know well that's we're gonna get a whole movie of it so who knows yep i'll have to see how that works out all right well we should move on we've touched on movies uh kind of as a sidebar yep not necessarily Did you see any movies this week watching. i have not you yeah i finally got out to see the shape of water oh how was it <laughs> i really liked it yeah. It was really good. I I like Guillermo del Toro's films generally, and uh, this one was. Uh, you know what it made me think of? Uh, did you ever? Do you remember that movie Big Fish? Yes. That was. I mean, basically everything takes place in the real world, yet there are these sort of surreal aspects to it that just okay and, and supernatural aspects to it, and that's basically the way this movie exists. It's almost yeah. like a fairy tale written in the real world that just has these these little elements that take it outside of the realm of just being a normal dramatic love story, and I mean the. The surreal element is obviously that we're talking about an amphibian creature from somewhere. But other than that, it really plays like a Cold War era dramatic uh, love story going on in this uh, this location. And it has only limited sort of uh, departures from the idea of just straight up filming this. You know, there Mm -hmm. are there's. 
Is it really just one sequence that's really sort of not just linear storytelling? And it really works uh, in terms of of that, and it, it it adds to this sort of surreal feel to the movie without taking you like oh this is like it's without really going off the the deep end really very cool i i don't i think this is one that i don't want to spoil but there are always aspects to guillermo del toro's films that he he takes something that gets introduced very early and it pops up a couple of times through the film and then resolves itself in the end that's just a tiny little detail and the one in this movie is fantastic and uh, i when i watched it i was like this is why he's a filmmaker and I'm not because I would never think of the way you use such a small and insignificant thing to if you go back and think about it how how meaningful and how it really expresses how the whole film came out and it's the tiniest of detail and maybe we'll talk about it some other time uh, when <laughs> yeah I, I'm gonna have to try and see that one soon um, yeah I'm really intrigued I I just from the trailer, I knew this was going to be something I liked. I've, I've enjoyed pretty much anything of his I've watched. And uh, it seemed like a really cool cool concept for him to, to play with. Yep. So what happened, though, I'll tell you the, the the funny part was I went with Skyler to go see it, who's my older son. And my younger son went with my wife to go see Paddington 2. And <laughs> so we, we came out of the movie and... Uh, and Skyler's like, I wonder how Paddington 2 went for those guys. And I was like, you know what, I bet. And he asked sort of, I wonder how Paddington 2 was. And I said, yeah, I bet there was about 100% less human amphibian sex in Paddington 2 <laughs> than there was in uh, The Shape of Water. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, that, that's not a spoiler. I'd seen some pretty funny tweets yeah. about that whole thing. So. It was really good. Good times. Very enjoyable. And I'd been kind of that that would have previously been on my what have you been missing or wishing you had been uh, had seen, which is our next sure. segment. But I managed to see it this week. So nice. All right. Well, let's keep moving. Game about games is next. I've been, of course, still playing Star Realms, my long term uh, addiction. Uh, but I started checking out a base building space game called Halcyon Six. And uh, I still haven't gotten far enough into it to decide how much I like it. It seems to want me to play it in longer stints than I tend to game nowadays. I tend to play in little short bursts. And um, I haven't, haven't gotten far enough into this one, but it's the kind of scenario where you start with the base, you build ships, you start to put the ships on you know, resource gathering missions, and you build up a fleet to fight battles. It's got a pretty cool style. It's kind of retro-y style, not People call it 8-bit, but it's really more like 16-bit. But it seems pretty cool, although the one thing that I've noticed with a couple of these games that are originally PC games that get ported to iPad, because I play a lot of my games on iPad now, is, you know, the controls are good, but the display, they've shrunk down a lot of things to just teeny, teeny, tiny little fonts. And when you're trying to, you know, gather a lot of information on the screen from these tiny little display windows, uh, that doesn't quite work. So the, the look and feel of it and the uh, gameplay seems pretty cool, but uh, the controls and, and the actual, you know, following it has been a bit much. But what's really cool, though, is the fleet battles is turn-based, um, which I appreciate. And it's it's kind of reminds me of... 
you know those kind of Final Fantasy style RPGs where you'd have your line of heroes on one side of the screen and the line of enemies on the other side and you would kind of choose who to attack and what to attack them with? Oh yes. There were some so all night sessions with those Final Fantasy games with the exact yes. thing, yeah. So it's that kind of battle but with ships and so uh, you can kit out your ships with what weapons do you want to employ, and you can scan the enemy fleet for what are their vulnerabilities. And uh, so it's all about kind of trying to make, trying to exploit their vulnerabilities with the right weapons. So kind of cool. And this is a straight up uh, resource like uh, real time strategy building, or is there some uh, underlying basis to how you get things? There's a. Uh, I mean, you, you basically you find different planets um, and, and bases that have uh, that produce resources, and once you've kind of found them, you can just set a ship going back and forth to gather or just actually manually do that. But I think eventually you can build up a sort of a drone fleet that'll do that retrieval for you automatically. So, yeah, it's looking pretty cool, but I'm, I'm, uh, it's early days, and I'm having a hard time getting getting the long enough stints to really advance the game. I keep restarting the, the early stuff, which is not the best, you know, in those kinds of games. Yep. Is that a paid app on the uh, App Store? Yeah, it was like six or seven bucks, which it seems to have a lot of content. So I don't I don't mind dropping, you know, anywhere up to ten bucks on, uh, on App Store games. I know some people really freak out about any game that's more than three dollars on uh, on the App Store, but I don't buy you know console games and things so it didn't bother me yeah as long as it's not one that is then going to pester you to sink repeatedly more money into it i i feel the same way like if you're if you're buying a complete game under somewhere up to ten dollars is reasonable but if you're buying a game that's uh going to constantly require either the in-app purchases yeah the in-app purchases you're gonna have to give me it at a much lower price i hear you but the i mean consequently though i mean the the formula works because those cheap in-app purchases ones i mean the the purchases are uh, often exceed the ten dollar threshold that oh, we're talking about no, so it's, it's in, ridiculous yeah i i tend to cut myself off as soon as i notice that if i've if i've paid for something multiple times in a day or multiple days in a row it's like <laughs> okay i've got to delete that that's yeah. just stupid <laughs> Yeah, what have I been playing? Uh, I got sucked into uh, Skyler after Christmas was unhappy because his little brother has been monopolizing the Nintendo Switch and the TV constantly. So okay. he wanted to get a PC game and yeah. decided he wanted Fallout 4, which I was all for because I meant to play it. I would have played it back when it came out and it was sure. either a bad time or I was playing something else and I just missed it. So mm-hmm. he installed it on the computer, started playing it, said, mm-hmm. I don't really like it. And I said, okay, well, um, just leave it on the computer and then started playing it myself. How I, is it? Uh, so I really like it. It's that sort of new style of RPG that uh, is you know, almost like a first-person, well, it is a first-person shooter combined with you know classic RPG elements. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot of fun. It's uh, it's got a good system. It it has though the problem that I've had with the last couple of real RPGs of that sort that I've played, which would go um, sort of Skyrim and then Witcher three and now this mm-hmm. one that the 
mechanics of what you do with all of the crap that you collect because it's deep into crafting, crafting and yeah. and what you do with this stuff and what you can build with it and what you can make with it later on is there's so much of it and there's so much that you can do with it that the you basically wind up having a part-time job trying to figure out what to do in the game and and it's just it's problematic with me having a full-time job and other stuff to then also have a part-time job trying to figure out what i'm supposed to be doing in the, in a game that i'm supposed to be playing as a way of escaping from my job and right. so i don't know i mean i'm going to keep keep going and i'm going to keep seeing how it works out but i mean i loved the witcher series and the second one was fantastic and i loved it and so i was super excited for ages for the third one to come out and then i get to the third one you go out you start collecting stuff within an hour of playtime your inventory is completely packed you can't carry anything or move around yet you know all of this these items that you have are elements of crafting that you may or may not want to do down the road so now i have to shut off the game and go out and start researching like what do i want to keep what's the stuff that's valuable what stuff am i actually going to craft down the road what do i not want to and then eventually as uh, my issue is it basically becomes a part-time job to keep up with do i want to keep all this crap what am i going to make with it and i eventually stop playing it even though i had looked forward to it for a long time and that's yeah. that's what the same point i hit with skyrim as well although it was great i enjoyed playing it i didn't have time to have a part-time job to show me how what i do with all of this stuff and which place i go to and which armor right. do i actually want to build what am i going to waste stuff on that i'm then going to be so i don't know fallout is great it's nice to play a, an rpg that's not uh fantasy based you know i have no issue with fantasy based stuff but to play one that is uh, a serious rpg in the model of all of the fantasy based ones that i like that's in a non-fantasy world uh, but with all of the depth and stuff of of those games is really great it's uh and it's fun but yeah. yeah i hear you there and i you know crafting to me when it becomes a requirement uh like you i think you put it really well in terms of it becomes a job it's, it's kind of fun in the discovery phase but if it becomes you know more of what you do than the missions then that's that's to me when i i kind of start to feel silly about playing those games <laughs> did you ever play conan the online version of like where you're basically in the no. Conan universe that was the point where I stopped playing it because I was playing basically a Conan type character big muscular guy barbarian yeah. type and I'm out walking out into the wilderness with a pickaxe and hammering away at rocks and I'm like what the fuck am I doing with this in the Conan game? Like, why am I standing there with a the pickaxe hammering away at rocks to get some resource that I'm going to go craft something with? I'm like, this is not a Conan world-based game if this is what I'm Robert doing. Robert Howard would be turning over in his grave. <laughs> that was the point where that one got uninstalled. Yeah. All right. Any, uh, any tabletop gaming in your week? Did I? Not a ton. Well, nothing new. I played uh, Lords of Waterdeep. 
mm-hmm. which I think is a game Always that I first brought down to your place when I first got it, because I had a friend whose son got it for Christmas, and they were having difficulty figuring it out, so I offered to go over and do a... That's two- right. I think, uh, yeah, I think that was the first time I played it. It was one of your uh, annual summer visits here. Yep. So uh, basically, they uh, were having difficulty figuring it out because they're not gamers, and they're, but their son was desperate to play it. So I told them I would come over and do an evening tutorial play session with them. So we did that. It was fun. Cool. I really like that game. Yeah, um, it holds up. I, uh, yeah. That's another one I play on iPad a lot. Um, yeah. It's a really slick app. Yeah. Uh, although they changed it recently, and I'm not sure I like the interface as much, but I've put in many, many games on that. It's the kind of game that it's just fiddly enough that be able to play a game in 20 minutes or half an hour on a device as opposed to setting it up and, and uh, all the setup and teardown. It's, uh, it's, it's a fun game. Yeah. They have the uh, two expansions available on the, I- on the iPad version yep. as well, right? Yeah, and I... Yeah, they're... I think they're an extra purchase, but it's fairly minimal. Yeah. I don't understand why they came out with one expansion, well, one expansion box that has two expansions in it so quickly after that game came out, and then nothing now for a couple of years. Uh, I don't know. I'm uh, I'm not a huge fan of expansions by and large. Like in general, I like Waterdeep is something that by the time you put both expansions in there, I don't know where else you could go with it. Yeah, I did, however, buy from somewhere online the little tiny figures that are actual little warriors and wizards and clerics so you're not just pushing cubes yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i've had uh this week uh tons of tabletop gaming my regular sunday night crew is back up to its regular six and uh, that includes my one friend rob who uh, buys a lot of games and he tends to buy the bigger miniature based games so last weekend we played a homebrew version of Zombicide that he put together. For people who haven't played Zombicide, it's big mini-based slugfest where your characters level up really quickly and kill a ton of zombies. And uh, it's it's kind of based on a almost you know ridiculous scale of how how many zombies you have to kill. But he took the concept of Dead of Winter, which is another zombie game. Have you played Dead of Winter? I have, yes. Okay, so concept in Dead of Winter, of course, is more closer to the kind of concept of uh, Walking Dead, where you're you're trying to recruit people for your shelter and build up a population and find resources and things like that, as opposed to just kind of wantonly slaying zombies. So he did a mashup of Zombicide and Dead of Winter called Zed of Winter, and uh, we had a big six-player competitive game of, of this where we had a huge map and there were, we started at opposite ends of the map, and we had survivors all over the map that we could find and take back to our base. But then we also had to get water and food for each each survivor, and it was competitive in that we had a certain number of turns, and it was who was going to have most survivors in their bases uh, by the end of the game. And it uh, worked out really fun. It was a really neat spin on Zombicide. Sorry, one of the people in your group created this uh, mashup? Yeah, I mean, it, it basically followed the, the rules of Zombicide, but it was just essentially a very elaborate custom scenario. And uh, it worked out great. It was a lot of fun. It, the 
you know, we were constantly in fear of getting attacked by each other. We didn't end up attacking each other's party very often, but uh, we were constantly in fear of it. And uh, he also had set up this, the, the map basically had a spawn point in the middle that was sort of a cage that every so often it would uh, just spew out a whole bunch of, of zombies right in the middle between the two of us. But it was kind of unpredictable as to how often that would happen. So I uh, kept the tension high and it was a really good, really good competitive version of Zombicide. Nice. I like Zombicide. I do not own it. It's been on my list for ages, but, you know, too many other games. Yeah, it's, uh, and then uh, also this week, just tonight, I was playing, it's called Massive Darkness, and um, it's by the same company, Cool Mini or Not, and it really, so I was playing Massive Darkness, which is essentially a fantasy dungeon crawler by the makers of Zombicide and very much following the same kind of gameplay and feel of Zombicide. So uh, lots and lots of, of uh, enemies to fight and the enemies are driven by some really basic card-based card AI so you don't have to have a, a game master to run them. But it was also kind of, uh, kind of like a Diablo game or something where you just have tons and tons of treasure you can gather. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I generally... Um, I'm pretty skeptical of the dungeon crawl type games, but this one worked out to be pretty fun, at least for a one-off. I don't know how many times I'd play it, but it was pretty good. Which What was that one called again? So it's called Massive Darkness. I want to talk about one game that I, notwithstanding my, I don't need to buy new games, having pre-ordered two Aftershocks, what uh, did pre-order the other night, a card game called Unstable Unicorns, and... The, the reason I ordered is because it's made by this basically t-shirt company called T-Turtle that uh, I'm a fan of and the kids are a huge fan of. They, they basically do these ironic uh, t-shirts with characters that they've created. They do okay. some superhero stuff as well in sort of odd positions or situations but they basically have you know uh, asher has one he's my youngest that has a, a drawing of a bunny running with two chainsaws in in his hand and the caption on the shirt is this is my spirit animal and skylar has one with a bunny rabbit reading a book that says uh books uh, are like people only more interesting <laughs> and uh so this those are the types of shirts they make like you know there's one with a unicorn with a knife attached to its horn that says i will cut you <laughs> it's they're, they're funny shirts they're interesting stuff and they they've made a card game using all of the characters from their t-shirts i have no idea what it's about or anything about it but it's called unstable unicorns and uh, it'll probably and be happy enough to throw 20 bucks at it that's exactly right so yeah, I've been uh, I've managed to uh, keep myself away from the Kickstarters for a good while now. I had a pretty good run. Uh, I had a period of uh, like a year or two ago where I I backed a lot of stuff. So I had a, a sweet run of six months or a year where just every month or two something was showing up that I'd half forgotten ordering. That's kind of fun. Yeah, it is the fun thing about Kickstarter and stuff that sometimes it especially when there are delays or whatever you kind of put out of your mind like all right i'll i'll get it when i get it and then you it leaves and then one day you get this email saying it'll be showing up at your doorstep soon yep for sure 
All right. Uh, we do have podcasts as next on our agenda. Yeah, the only thing I've really been checking out this week was No Such Thing as a Fish. Are you familiar with that one? Nope. So it's uh, produced by the BBC, so of course it's got some good smart people on it, and they're all science science e people. I don't know if they're scientists or science journalists or what they are. I think maybe a mix. Uh, there's generally four of them, and basically they each show up every week with an interesting fact. And they talk about that fact. They're usually hard to believe. And then they just riff on them and ask each other questions and, and raise point out you know related things but uh it's a really simple concept but it works really really well the one of the facts uh this week was that um scientists have just unearthed a 200 foot tall sphinx in the egyptian desert that is 95 years old 95 (laughs) it was actually buried by Cecil B. DeMille after the filming of the Great of the Ten Commandments. It's a movie they, prop. It's a movie prop and they built the set. They buried all the sets after the movie <laughs> and somebody has been looking for them for the last ten years and they finally found them. Apparently there were something like ten or twelve sphinxes of varying sizes used in that movie and it was all practical effects and they didn't even use any matte paintings in that so there were all kinds of props and walls and things built and it was all just left there in the desert so you know being from the ten commandments uh, i suppose it has some historical significance although not quite the same as if you'd found a ten thousand year old sphinx buried somewhere else (laughs) in the desert exactly anyways that was that was just one uh one example but it's a it's a great it's a really consistent show and it's got great production and they don't do anything but it takes them about 30 seconds to get into their into their facts. They do the stuff. There's no advertising. It's a great, uh, great, dense little podcast, but very, very funny. Mm-hmm. So check that one out. No such thing as a fish. I uh, listened to nothing other than my usual podcast this week. So it was uh, Kevin Smith's Fat Man on Batman, mm-hmm. uh, The Nerdist, and uh, I usually listen to Canada Land on a regular basis. Yeah. Nothing particularly interesting this week. Caught a little bit of uh, Terry O'Reilly's Under the Influence. I actually get that on CBC uh, over the airwaves more often than I do as a podcast. But, yeah, uh, me too. It's a great show. It really is. Uh, I always forget when I listen to it. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. What was the original name of that uh, that show? Under the Influence? Yeah. Did it have a different name before that? It did. It had an original name, and then they changed it to Under the Influence. Interesting. Hmm. I would have to look that up. I, uh, I've i been listening to it for a while, too, but I don't remember that, that aspect uh, of it. You know what? It just came to me. This is not even Google searching. It was called The Age of Persuasion. Oh, yeah. That's right. Because it was, yeah, it was really um, almost like a like a documentary series more than an ongoing series yep better good name change i I think i like under the influence better toys and collectibles if we have any uh passing in that pass all right oh so i'll say one thing since uh, we saw the dark crystal the kids that i've been i saw them with i saw them with my two sons and a friend of mine's two daughters they've been seeking out and buying dark, dark crystal pop toys Oh dear! <laughs> I've, 
I'm not a fan of Funko Pops, I gotta say. Yeah. Yeah. Skylar typically gets one a year, and so that they they are gradually sort of filling up a shelf, but not exploding, not like the... Right. But, uh, yeah, now the Dark Crystal Pop toys have become the, like, the chase item for them. So, like, Skeksis? Yeah. I I just, I don't even want to see that. (laughs) It's... It's like it's like uh, it's like an internet snuff film. I I, I know it exists. I yeah. don't even want to. I don't even want to put that term into my browser and find out what it looks like. Okay. Well, I think we've covered quite a bit tonight, and it's actually really late. So why don't we uh, why don't we call it there? Sounds good to me. All right. Good to talk to you, buddy. Good to talk to you. That's all for this week. Mm-hmm.